Well, good morning. If we've not met, my name's Carson Cobb. I'm the student pastor here. And we've just wrapped up um, the book of Titus, our study of the book of Titus. We wrapped that up last week. But I think I mentioned at the very beginning of the year that in between our different preaching series, we were going to have some standalone sermons that teach on the key metaphors, or perhaps better uh, said, images of the church given to us in the New Testament. And we're doing this so that we can discover what the Bible says the church really is, not just what the church does or even has done in history, you know, right and wrong, but what is the church really underneath all the external trappings? How does God see the church? We live in a time of great disconnect and even disunity at, at the, in the church at large. And in the broader culture, there's skepticism toward the church and a drift toward individual spirituality and away from formal religious affiliation. You know, the thinking goes, why even bother with an actual church community these days? They believe kind of weird stuff. And let's face it, the church is a mess. They can't even get their act together. And while, of course, some of these criticisms aren't without warrant, by understanding what the church really is, we will understand the value of the church itself. Uh, the Associated Press reported a tragic story of an elderly Israeli woman whose daughter mistakenly threw away her mother's life savings when she surprised her by getting rid of her old, lumpy mattress and replacing it with a new one. The mother didn't notice the new mattress when she went to bed that night, but woke up the next morning screaming, bewildered. She had over $1 million, uh, $1 million in dollars and shekels in her mattress, which by the time she realized it had already been hauled away to one of three possible nearby landfills. So the woman and her daughter, with the help of the landfill manager, frantically searched through tons of garbage, this is an actual picture from the story, to find the mattress, but to no avail. The manager said the mattress was hard to find among the 2,500 tons of garbage that arrive every day. So the woman said she stashed the money in her mattress because she had traumatic experiences with banks. <laughs> Although I bet the mattress debacle may prove to be more traumatizing in the end. Yeah. So could it be the case that we don't value the church because we really don't understand what it is we have? If you'll forgive the swapping of metaphors, let's not throw out the money with the mattress. Yeah. So far this year, we've talked about what it means for the church to be a family. We kicked off the year with that. And today we're going to explore another biblical theme that once again underscores the value of the church and helps us treasure her. So, question, and you really can answer this one out loud, true or false, the church is a building. Aha, trick question. To which you say, I'll never answer your questions again, you mean man, you know. Yeah, if you've been around church long enough, you know the mantra that the church is not a building, but a people. And of course, that's right, in a literal sense. Good job, everyone. But it's also the case that in the Bible, the people are compared to and depicted as a building. Jesus' first words about the church in Matthew 16 are, I will build my church. And the building that the church is portrayed as is a temple. Now, we need to first try to grasp the importance of temples and the temple in the Bible before we move on to how this should affect the way we see and feel about the church. Because for us, when I say the church is a temple, 
I think that's probably a bit lost on most modern people. Now, does it really fill you with any sense of awe or amazement? Oh, wow, the church is a temple of God. Likely not, because we think of temples as ancient, you know, antiquated, boring, empty, foreign. Uh, Maybe like me, you just think about Indiana Jones when you hear temples, you know. But to the ancient world and to many, many people in the world today, temples are of vital importance to their community. They're busy, centrally located sometimes, important, sacred, and the need for a temple is obvious to them. I remember seeing uh, some temples when I went to India a few years back. These places were active, busy, crowded, and almost frantic as people crammed in to offer sacrifices and ring bells and receive blessings from the priests to appease and ward off evil spirits. And this isn't just in places like India. There's a temple outside of Boone, which we ran into actually on our elder retreat this year. We went for a walk, and there's this huge temple up on a mountain outside of Boone. And young people especially come in from all over the country to stay at these types of temple compounds and seek out some sort of connection with the divine. Perhaps they understand better than we do what temples represent. Most people up until some modern day societies like ours have intuitively recognized the deeply ingrained longing for connection with the divine. And so a temple is a place that represents a point of connection and communication, however limited, with the spiritual realm. And so for many, many people, regularly visiting a temple is a regular, necessary, vital part of life. For virtually everyone in the ancient world, the purpose and meaning of temples was well understood to be a point of attempted connection or meeting place with the divine, a place where God or the gods would supposedly manifest their presence in some way. And biblically speaking, the theme of the temple figures heavily across the storyline of the scriptures. Let me take just a few moments to try to sketch this out. So in the book of Genesis... When God creates the heavens and the earth and fashions the Garden of Eden, there are several features of creation and of Eden that as you keep reading through the Bible, you realize are meant to be very temple-like. And this will become more clear in a moment. For, For a second, just notice that when God creates creation and Eden, there are six days of creation that lead up to a seventh day of rest and blessing. There are also three parts to creation, the sea, the land, in the sky. When you read about the geography of Eden, you find that four rivers flow down from Eden as if it sits atop a mountain and brings life into the garden and into the world. You find that the land around Eden is full of gold and precious stones. And then Adam is placed in the garden to work and to keep or guard it. And in the center of the garden, there are trees, tree of life, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You find that God's own presence dwells in Eden as he speaks with the people and is described even as walking with Adam and Eve. So you can think of the garden as a place where there was life, where God dwelt, where humanity served as priests in this garden temple, working and worshiping and keeping watch over it. But of course, this doesn't go on very long in the story before they betray God's trust, take the fruit, ruin the whole thing, and are exiled from the garden. And then an angel called a cherubim is placed at the entrance of the garden to guard the way back in. So that's Eden. 
Now, where this gets interesting is that thousands of years later, after the Israelites are freed from slavery in Egypt, they receive the Ten Commandments, Moses is given strangely detailed instructions on how to build a large tent, or it's called a tabernacle, where God's presence will dwell with his people, though in a limited and contained way. And the later Israelite temple, which is built by King Solomon, uh, is a more permanent upgrade, but based on the same design. And if you attempt to read these parts of scripture, you will likely find them highly skimmable with all the details about the construction of the tabernacle and the temple. But you might also notice some things if you read these highly skimmable portions. They were prepared by a series of seven commands, the tabernacle. And then the temple is dedicated by a series of seven prayers that results in rest and blessing. Solomon's temple took seven years to complete, and at the completion, God's presence comes and fills the temple. Like creation, the temple and the tabernacle were divided into three parts, the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. The temple sat atop Mount Zion in Jerusalem, like Eden's topography up on a mount. And the inside of the temple was overlaid in gold and adorned with precious stones like the land around Eden. And it's interesting that the tabernacle and the temple were adorned with lush, nature-like imagery. The gold in the temple was engraved with patterns of fruit trees and plants and flowers. And even the golden lampstands in the temple, the menorah, were shaped like almond trees with blossoms on them. You see that the priests in the temple are commanded to work and to keep it just like Adam and Eve. And the entrance into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant resided was decorated with cherubim, these angelic warrior creatures who symbolically guarded the way into God's presence. So the design and the decoration of the temple itself was meant to be a reminder of Eden, reminding people of the life-giving presence of God that we once experienced. But of course, if you know the story, the Israelites do not keep the temple either, but they profane it. And eventually they're destroyed. Uh, the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians and they are exiled from their land. It does get rebuilt later in the story, but God's presence doesn't fill it as it did before. And it's kind of a huge letdown. So then a few hundred years after this, Jesus comes onto the scene in Israel. And he says wild things like something greater than the temple is here. He predicts that although the rebuilt Jewish temple will be destroyed again, his temple, his body, even if destroyed, would be rebuilt in just three days. While standing in the temple, he says out loud, I mean literally shouts it, that he is the water of life, and that whoever believes in him will have rivers of living water flowing out of their hearts. And this caused a huge uproar because people understood what he was saying. Jesus equated himself with the temple. And by doing that, he was saying something radical. If you want to meet God, if you want to have a real encounter with God, you must come to me. I am the only way into God's presence, into his life, and into the rest that you've always longed for, is what Jesus says. And in, at the very end of the Bible, finally, in the last chapters of the book of Revelation, there's a vision of the future renewed heavens and earth. And you see this garden city with water flowing out of it and the tree of life in the middle. And then the author of Revelation explicitly remarks that he saw 
no temple because God himself is present with his people once again. So in the end, God intends for his presence to fill creation, to expand Eden to every part of the universe. And this is how the Bible ends, with no need for a physical temple because the new creation itself will be God's temple where he dwells. It fulfills what the temple was supposed to represent all along, a meeting place of God and humanity. Okay, so what does this little Bible survey have to do with the church today? Well, in the book of Acts, you see the first church is filled with God's presence, like a mighty rushing wind, just as Solomon's temple was filled with the presence of God. And then soon after that, the New Testament authors like Paul and Peter would go on to write outlandish things like this to the churches. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And this is plural Greek for you. So that's y'all, which some of us understand. You all, you all, the church. You are God's temple. You are the place where his spirit dwells. This is a massive statement given what you know of the storyline of the Bible. The church, God's people, are now his dwelling place. The first phase of a new temple. What an insane privilege that we, the church, are meant to be God's dwelling place. How can people come to know God, to meet him, and experience his blessing, his presence, his mercy. It's meant to be through the people, through his church. So in God's church, there's so much more going on than meets the high. God wants to shape us, even us, Northwake Church, into a place, into a people where his own presence and power would reside in our lives and in our homes and in our gatherings. And this is an awesome privilege to be the place where God is said to live with us. And I know it might sound arrogant or superior to say that the church is the way the world can meet God. And I'll try to address that at the end in just a bit. But for now, I want to just challenge each of us who believe the scripture's teaching on this to see one another and to see even our worship gatherings on Sunday as a unique and powerful way that God himself meets with us in a way that you cannot experience on your own. I remember a conversation with one of my grandpa's old fishing buddies. And uh, we were out fishing on a lake, me, my grandpa, and his buddy. Maybe it was on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, I don't remember. But I think my grandpa's buddy was kind of giving a defense of why he fished on Sunday mornings too and didn't go to church. Uh, my grandpa didn't like say anything to him about it. I guess he just knew my grandfather was like a church-going guy and maybe he felt kind of guilty. I don't remember. But I just remember him saying something like this. I feel God's presence way more out here in nature than I ever have in some church. And of course, in one sense, his instincts are right. The whole creation was meant to be God's temple. And solitude is an important way to meet with God. And I certainly don't know what experiences this man has had with the churches before, so I don't intend to pass judgment on him. But I can't help but feel that maybe he was struggling to see what I so often fail to see. And that is God is up to something special in the church through his people. 
God intends to bless the world and make himself known to the world through the church. We are his temple. Do you think about church like this? I mean, just to be honest, I mean, I'm a pastor. So most of my life is given to serving and thinking about and loving the church. And yet, to be honest, I find that my view of her is far too low. Church can make me busy or worried about saying something stupid, teaching in front of a bunch of people, or where I can just get where I'm just getting through a busy week or a busy morning here on Sunday. And I totally fail to understand that as God's temple, God longs to make himself known to us and to dwell with us and to have us represent him to the world. Christians never just go to church. We join with myriads and myriads of believers throughout the ages and across the globe who gather to worship the God of the universe and celebrate the truth that through Jesus Christ, we can be reconciled to God and brought near to him to know his mercy and his presence in our lives even now. We never just go to church. This is a high calling to be part of a church. It means you're the temple of God. So may God open our eyes today to see what we get to be a part of. And to help us in that, I want us to prayerfully reflect upon three scriptures read from the New Testament. And these show us what it means to be the temple of God or what that means for us in purity, in unity, and in witness to the world. So listen to 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 7, 1 read, and then I'll lead us in some reflection and prayer on it, and then we'll hear another one read. So Jeremy's going to come read 2 Corinthians 6, 16 to 7, 1, purity. Purity of the church, 2 Corinthians 6, 16 through 7, 1. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the living temple. We are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is God's good word for us. Thanks be to God. So what does it mean to be a dwelling place for God? It means that the church is to be pure. That we are always more concerned for the sin in our own ranks than that of the culture or the world around us. It means we recognize the stains and flaws of the church, of us, and repent of them. To be God's church is to belong exclusively to him. There's no other idols in his temple. Nothing that would absorb our hearts and imaginations that we'd so gladly expend our time and money on. Nothing we would ground our sense of worth and significance upon more than him. To be God's temple is to be God's. So let's reflect. Is there anything in your life that is competing with God for your heart, for your affections, for your attention? Are there habits 
attitudes in your own life that are just not fitting for someone who is part of the temple of the living God. Paul would want you to know that in Christ, you are God's beloved, and the promises of his fellowship are far more wonderful than whatever else you might be captivated by today. Isn't the promise of God's loving presence in your life a better prospect? This is why he says, since you have these promises, beloved, since you have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. Let's stop and pray about this before we move on and hear the next scripture read. So Lord, may the promise of your presence become sweeter to us than anything else. Forgive us, Lord, for we have elevated things, even good gifts from you. We've elevated them far too high and expected them to satisfy our deepest needs. And when they do not, we confess we are angry with you, with ourselves, with those around us for not giving us what we wanted, comfort or approval, control or power, whatever it might be. So help us to not be so in love with the passing things and values of this world. And if there is anything that is defiling our bodies or souls this day, we ask that you would clean us. Clean us up. Make us holy. Make us yours. Amen. Now, the church in unity. Allison Reed's going to come read Ephesians 2, 12 to 22. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's good word for us. Thanks be to God. So what does it mean to be God's temple? It means unity amongst his people. Uh, supposedly temples in this era were not built with mortar, but rather the stones for the wall were cut and chiseled so that they perfectly interlocked with one another, which is, if you can imagine, required probably quite a lot of chiseling, shaving, and breaking. Why might God have you in this church? Are there people around you that sometimes rub you the wrong way? Perhaps that is part of God's chiseling process. 
We all have rough edges of pride and selfishness that need to be removed in order for us to fit together. And the Ephesians passage gives us marvelous insight as to how this happens. It'll only happen when we learn to see each other as true equals and our hostility is replaced with humility. Did you hear the passage? He says, you're now brought near and united because of the blood of Christ, his sacrifice. It's the great equalizer because your status before God is no longer based on the law of commandments that has been abolished. So there's truly no better and no worse among us. I don't know, do you ever sense a bit of spiritual competition with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Ever find yourself comparing yourself to somebody else's spiritual qualities? You know, oh, they just know the Bible so much better than me. They're always out there talking with people about Jesus or the other way around. I would never watch the kinds of things they watch. I cannot believe they posted that on social media. In Christ, we have the same access in one spirit to the Father. If you have trusted Christ, you are a saint, a beloved member of God's household, and I must see you as such, regardless of my external appraisal of you. I love how C.S. Lewis captured this in his book, The Screwtape Letters, where a fictional demon is coaching another junior demon on how to tempt a new church-going man to never look beyond the off-putting characteristics of his fellow churchgoers. Uh, One section of the book goes like this. He says, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Remember, this is demon writing. So do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners, that, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, that is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local barber with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors, whom he has hitherto, so far, avoided. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. Churches used to have pews, right? Still do. That's the thing. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have shoes that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Don't underestimate your fellow churchgoers, double chins and all. And don't withdraw from the church because of what you see on the surface. The church, by its very nature, is a group assignment, a team sport, a community endeavor. A brick is not the same thing as a building. And a solo is never as beautiful as a symphony. You need the church, and the church needs you. If you're in a small group, your small group needs you to show up. And not just show up, but show up ready to speak the grace of Jesus to one another. And if you aren't in some sort of small group fellowship with other Christians here, the church suffers and you suffer. And if you have some barriers that you feel preclude you from being a part of Christian fellowship, please 
please reach out to one of our pastors so we can help you sort through that. We want to help you find a way to be vitally connected to other believers so that you can also have the wonderful experience of having your rough edges shaved down so that you can fit just right in the house that God is building with us. Let's take a moment to pray about this before we move on and hear the last passage read. Jesus, you are the builder of your church, of each church, placing each stone, each person where you see fit and carving us just right. And so I thank you for this church and for these people, for the role that they have played in chiseling out my imperfections. More to come. Would you knit us together, Lord, in unity that is born out of humility, knowing that it took the blood of Christ for any of us to be brought near to you. Forgive us for how often we size one another up and judge one another. Would you preach peace to us again today through your death on the cross for us that we might be a house of peace. Amen. And lastly, the church uh, the temple as witness. Josh Hempel is going to come read 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is God's good word for us. Thanks be to God. What does it mean to be God's temple? It means we represent him to the world in witness, to be a place, a people, where people can meet God. Christianity shocked the ancient religious scene because they did not have temples They met in homes or priests or sacrifices. And that first Peter passage explains why. Christians are supposed to be the temple. Christians are supposed to be the priests who proclaim his goodness and offer spiritual sacrifices of good deeds, honorable lives, and gospel speech. It's been said that Christianity does not have a priesthood because it is a priesthood. Christian leaders are called pastors Elders, even sometimes bishops in the New Testament, but never priests. That's for all of us, 
Because we all, if we bear the name of Jesus, represent him to the world. The work of a priest is to speak to God on behalf of people and to speak to the people on behalf of God and it always requires sacrifice. If you want to get serious about loving your friends and your neighbors who do not know Christ, it will cost you. It will cost you time dedicated to praying for them, emotional energy spent actually caring about their lives, changing your schedule around so that you can actually connect with them. It will cost us. But this is our work as priests. It's our privilege and our responsibility as priests to pray for the world around us. It's been a a beautiful and amazing thing if you've seen any of the videos of Ukrainian Christians gathering to do the simple thing of praying for their country and singing hymns together in worship to God. Worship and intercession. This is what priests do. What does Jesus say about the church? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So I want to challenge each of us who represent Christ, every Christian, to begin constantly, faithfully praying for peoples and individual people that you know who don't know Christ. Pray for them by name. Put a reminder on your phone. Make a habit of praying for them in your small groups. Join for prayer on our prayer gatherings once a month on Sunday nights. Next week, we'll be here at 6 p.m. praying for our church plants who are out there doing the very work of expanding the house of God further and further out. And they need our prayers. There's a group of men that gather here to pray over in Building 6 on Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. Guys, you could show up and pray with them. There's a group of ladies that every other Wednesday at Uh, 1 p.m., 12 p.m., which is it? 12, (laughs) over in building two, they meet every other Wednesday to pray. Ladies, you could join to pray with them. And then starting next week, for six weeks during the season of Lent, I'd like to invite anyone that wants to pray for revival in our church and renewal in our community on Thursdays on your lunch break for just a few short minutes on Thursdays at 12, 12 p.m., And I'm going to host anyone that wants to pray together over in Building 6 and over WebEx, which means you can go to northwake.com slash room 601. Pretty simple. Northwake.com slash room 601 on your phone or your computer. And we're going to pray for six weeks leading up to Easter. So wherever you're at, if you're in your office and you get a lunch break or you're at the park with your kids or you're in the library studying, put in your headphones. And feel free to go to that address, address northwake.com slash room 601 and hop on at 1212 to give you 12 minutes to get your lunch ready. Also, it's our address, 1212 South Main Street, so maybe you can remember it. And let's, let's have prayer together. There's no excuse not to pray for our community. This is our great privilege and our great responsibility to bring those around us before God in prayer to represent him to the world and to be a people through which the world can encounter God himself and come to know him as their father. And as I said, I would mention, I know that this could seem really presumptuous or egocentric for the church to say, we represent God on earth. And so if you want to come to know him, talk to us. But there's truly nothing special about us other than the foundation we are built upon. We are built upon the cornerstone of a crucified Messiah. There's no worldly status in believing what we believe. We know our faith is a stumbling block to many people 
They can't get over Jesus, that a man could claim to be God and die on a cross and rise from the dead to forgive our sins. It's just, it's, it's too much. And we can't get over him either, but in a different way. We've tasted his mercy, and it is too much. It called us out of our own life of dark self-absorption and into the light and life of God's love. We found that Jesus Christ is the only thing worth building our lives upon and the only sure way to know the blessing, acceptance, and pleasure of God upon our lives. And because of Jesus, we are being fashioned into the place where God lives and will one day dwell fully face to face. This is the church. She is God's temple. Let's pray.